welcome back to another episode of Between Lewis and Lovecraft. And uh, Tyler is still off being a dad, so we brought on a different Tyler to fill in for him today. Uh, Tyler Frankie, who I think is new to listeners of our shows. You haven't been on before, have you? I don't think so. But uh, you are Tyler Clausen's uh, business partner, so I feel like we've probably name-dropped you on the show a whole bunch. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure, yeah, and I um, was looking for a break from being a dad, so thanks for getting me <laughs> out of the house a little bit. Uh, but yeah, no, I am a professional journalist and uh, public relations person. Uh, work have experience working for uh, mainly newspapers and um, and then state government from the PR side. And then a few years ago, Tyler and I started our studio producing a local news podcast here in our hometown of Canby that's kind of blossomed into a full blown digital news uh, website and um, we produce some other podcasts now as your listeners will know um, and and some others as well that they may not have heard of um, but we, we do that for for some other clients and we kind of provide a suite of uh, of business adjacent services as well in terms of graphic design video and audio production and all kinds of fun stuff like that yeah so i've been very lucky to know both of you pretty much since you started this whole venture how what yeah. like two or three years ago three at yeah this point? it was through covering the news that we met each other right yeah so yeah. um that's kind of like i talked to you first and then that's how yeah. Tyler Clausen found me. Um, I don't get so, enough yeah. credit for that. I feel like uh, we should, we should give you like a, a like a sub get head it? on our show title or yeah. something. Can I like, get in the, in the uh, credits? Yeah, for sure. We'll do that from now on. Be like, and to our real creator, Exec- executive producer or something. Yeah. <laughs> executive producer, showrunner, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so yeah. it's been super fun to kind of watch your guys's business blossom and to get to kind of like take advantage of that by, you know, moving out of recording at the book nook, which was great. But then we got to go into the studio and have like a really professional setup. So that's been awesome. So it's good to finally have you on. And this is an episode that like, I think you pitched to us a long time ago. You were like, when are you going to talk about Fyodor Dostoevsky? We we were planning out for Tyler's hiatus here. And I just want to say, I I love what you guys do um i've been a, a long time supporter and, and listener of you guys as well and it, oh, it's been you. awesome to see this blossom and i had forgotten i had totally forgotten that period that yeah this even predates uh because we started the studio a couple of years ago now it's been over two years um but what you guys have been doing uh predated that um and and the book nook has <laughs> moved a couple times since then as well it's just been the whole community is growing with us so yeah, that's so awesome. And I forgot about the book next move too. Obviously, I know that they moved because I have managed to find their new location. But right. yeah, they're not even in the same building anymore. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's an exciting time and can be. And I'm sad I'm not physically there recording at the studio with you right now. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, we we did we, we pitched this uh, a long time ago, uh, sort of before everyone was talking about Russia. <laughs> and uh and being afraid of russia um and and yeah we kind of had the conversation of should we still do this but uh i think we both kind of agreed that it it was very it was topical in a good way 
Yeah. And, and that was my thought originally, like last week or two weeks ago, when I was hitting you up to remind you and be like, Hey, when would be a good time to record? I was like, wow, this is really eerie that when we finally get around to doing an episode on one of Russia's most famous writers, Russia is right. like a major SEO term. <laughs> right. I mean, that was my initial thought is like, you know, for your listeners, uh, yeah, the, the thing everybody's wanting at this current moment is a, a positive look at one of <laughs> the great celebrated writers of Russia, everyone's favorite country at, at this time. That's just what we need. But <laughs> And that's been such a crazy thing, like, because we've seen so many headlines in the last couple of weeks of just really kind of, in my opinion, way too far reactions to everything mm -hmm. going on in Russia in terms of like, there was some international cat show that's like no Russian cats are allowed in our, yeah. in our cat show. And Dostoevsky himself um, has had a pretty rough go of it lately. Uh, I don't know if yeah. you saw that like Italian university that was trying to postpone a course on his works. Um, the college's administration apparently said sent the professor an email saying they wanted to avoid any controversy during this time of strong tensions. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, that fortunately got a lot of backlash pretty, pretty instantaneously. So the college reversed course and is like, no, we're not going to cancel this famous Russian writer who was exiled to Siberia for, you know, reading the wrong literature and having the wrong thoughts. So in that sense, I feel like it's especially appropriate to talk about Dostoevsky in the current moment. Yeah, I mean, and I obviously we're not going to go too, too geopolitical and you know, uh, my probably useless thoughts on that um, in this podcast, but uh, I, I do feel, you know, a lot of that is maybe self-defeating um, in terms of e even like the economic sanctions and things like a lot of those are going to, I feel, hurt hurt the people that aren't responsible for this more than they hurt the people that are. Um, so some of the, you know, banning of the, the books and the, you know, Disney and stuff, like we're not going to show our stuff in Russia. I'm not sure that isolating, you know, the 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 country of Russia intellectually and culturally more than it already is is necessarily the, you know, going to be helpful. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that uh, we hate Putin, and uh, you know, most of the people in Russia have no say in whether or not Putin invades another country. And most of them probably right. don't even support it. We've seen a lot of protests. And right. uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who's been dead for more than a hundred years, certainly has nothing to do with the current invasion. And probably, I feel confident saying, would have opposed it as well. You think so? I think so. Are we gonna talk about that later? I think we should. Um, yeah, I think that I would just, with the protests, right? Because protests are banned, so like, if you do see a few hundred people protesting something in Russia, like times that by a hundred, right? Because those are just the people that are so impassioned that they're willing to risk imprisonment or, or being beaten or even worse, you know, to, yeah. to showcase their opinion. Protesting but, uh, in uh, the U S is almost like, you know, it, protest is important but protesting in the U.S. is like super easy right. in Russia it's like if you see people out there with signs you should be like holy shit they, they mean it yeah. they mean it they, you, they know, could you know they're not doing it just because their friends were like and they were like sure yeah I'm not doing anything <laughs> yeah. for the next hour <laughs> yeah no they mean it I mean I think that we both said and, and I'm sure we're we're gonna get into it um but that I think the main reason we both felt it was good to to pull the trigger on this was that it's fascinating um, 
at least for us non-Russians and non-experts of Russia or, or Eastern Europe in general, um, how little has kind of changed in 200 years and that we sort of can see the roots of what is happening right now, right this second in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine and in Russia, um, in some of the things that Dostoevsky and some of his contemporaries were living through, potentially arguing or writing against, uh, fighting against even, even way back then. And it's still an issue. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll get into that shortly, but as usual, we have to start at the very beginning. Fyodor Dostoevsky was born November 11th, 1821. I'm not saying Fyodor. <laughs> Rhymes with Fyodor. Theodore. <laughs> I think it's just, it's like two syllables. Fyodor. Fyodor Dostoevsky was born November 11th, 1821 in Moscow. Oh, okay. So here's my disclaimer. I went to school at Washington state, which is in Pullman, Washington, right across the mm. border from Moscow, Idaho. Oh. So I always try, it's spelled exactly the same, but they yeah. get so mad at you if you say Moscow. Wow. So, I, I've heard of Moscow, Idaho, and I definitely presumed it was pronounced Moscow. So no, that's so interesting. because of my three and a half years at Wazoo, I now cannot pronounce Moscow without stumbling. Yeah. In your research, just, and again, we'll get, but at the time, Ukraine, what's now Ukraine would have been part of Russia in Dostoevsky's time, correct? Yes. I yeah. think it still was called Ukraine, like regionally. Because okay. there were a couple people who were referred to as being Ukrainian. Yeah. But I think it was all part of Russia. The current independent, I do know, I don't know all of the history, but I do know the current independent state of Ukraine is only like 30 years old. It's definitely post-Soviet Union. It's from the early 90s. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. So Ukraine was part of, and Russia is massive, like. I kept going off on side tangents of just like looking at maps of Russia, trying to figure out where everything was. And I'm just like, wow, yeah. people forget how big it is. Yeah. Yeah. So he was born in Moscow. Uh, he was the second child of Dr. Mikhail Dostoevsky and Maria Dostoevskaya, which I think they uh, add on like an Aya to the female last names, which was another random thing I learned. Yeah. Um, they were Russian Orthodox Christians um, and had some nobility on his father's side, um, but they weren't like super rich by any means. Um, in his young life, he was raised in a home on the grounds of a hospital for the poor where his dad worked, um, and it was in a lower class district on the edges of Moscow. Uh, his dad eventually got rich enough to buy land and some serfs, uh, which serfs are, I feel like they're basically slaves. People don't really use that term to define them. They always call them like tenant farmers, but basically it's people who have to work the land for somebody else. So this was a huge thing in Russia and I think some other like Eastern European countries. Yeah, I yeah, it's it is really interesting to um, yeah, it was a concept that was largely uh, unfamiliar to me as well. Um, I think I'd heard the word surfs before, but probably thought it was just, you know, somebody mispronouncing Smurf, but um, I, I did not really understand um, the, at least in, in Russia, how the, um, you know, uh, concept was practiced, but it does seem very like sort of interesting and the sort of cagey way that they try to say it's not slavery, um, but it was people that had a very specific um, 
plot of land that they could that they could never own and could never move from <laughs> um and, and if had they to work ran away the owner their our own their the the owner of the land uh could you know hire people or try to get them back um so I, I I don't know. I mean, I think they they made money was about maybe the biggest difference. Um, but they not like enough. Yeah, yeah. They, they weren't were very technically poor. considered property, but they were considered assets of the landowner. Um, and I know that 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 was a thing. Like we're we're gonna get into it, but uh, was kind of um when it when it seemed like uh his father might have been spoiler alert, but killed by the serfs, uh, which was a common thing in that time. That that was one of the things where like, well, maybe we won't push this because if we lose like 12 of our serfs because they get sent to prison, then the, our estate's not going to be worth as much. <laughs> yeah. So super weird system, um, but like really defining of Russia at the time. Um, so yeah, so this was the, the context in which he was growing up. Um, he was like introduced to literature at a very young age. His nanny read him fairy tales. Uh, his mom used the Bible to teach him to read and write. Um, and his parents later introduced him to like a wide range of more advanced literature, including lots of famous Russian writers. Um, he and his brother, Mikhail, uh, his older brother, attended boarding school from about 12 onward. Um, and then in September of 1837, when he would have been 15 years old, almost 16, his mother died of tuberculosis. And she'd had like a really drawn out death uh, her health deteriorated for a long time until she was so weak that she couldn't even comb her hair and this was really devastating for uh young Dostoevsky because his mom was like the kind parent the gentle parent his dad was always like very hard on him and his brother so he was very sad to lose her and it affected his father too apparently he started drinking and even like carrying on full conversations with his wife's ghost so he was not doing well either post uh post maria's death um around that time theodore was also sent to a military engineering school because apparently um like these schools gave you a path towards state service which was supposed to present the best opportunities for upward mobility in this society um but he absolutely hated it it was full of like bullying and hazing rituals uh, he was not soldierly at all. Uh, he, you know, was really clumsy at the drills. He didn't like violence uh, and he never looked right or comfortable in his uniform, which yeah. I thought was funny. It's like, he can't even wear the clothes right. Yeah. And uh, he also didn't like algebra, geometry, or any of the other like sciencey subjects that were really right. valued at the time. He obviously excelled at literature. Right, right. Uh, so yeah, so as you uh, mentioned earlier, then in 1839, Dostoevsky got the news that his father had been murdered by his serfs. And like you said, this was not entirely uncommon because, you know, when you pe treat people like shit and don't pay them enough and force them to work for you, sometimes they get really mad about that. And we didn't quite mention, I mean, another probably big difference with United States and, and chattel uh, slavery, the system that we had before the Civil War, um, is the amount of people uh, involved in that system, right? So like slaves were, were what, even at the peak, like maybe 5% of the United States population, if that, whereas mm -hmm. in Russia, it's like 40% were right. in, in surfed. So it was a huge, huge um, 
just number of people that, uh, you know, were, uh, you know, just slightly less than a majority um, that were uh, getting a raw deal. Um, so you could sort of see just very clearly how fragile this system is. When it's nearly half the population, that is not yeah. a stable system of oppression by yeah. any means. <laughs> yeah. So, but there's a lot of controversy about whether or not um, his dad was actually killed by th- his serfs because right. two of the doctors who examined the body said he died of apoplexy. Um, and apparently the rumor came from a neighbor and he had some motive to lie because if the serfs were convicted, like you said earlier, they'd be sent to Siberia and the land would be less valuable for the Dostoevsky children. And so he could have in theory bought it for not very much money. Well, it's it's kind of like, um, cause apoplexy just means, right? Like your your brain stopped working basically, or like uh, 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 something bad happened to your brain. Um, so it's sort of like dying of blood loss. Like it's a, it's a very, I mean, it, it's accurate in terms of what actually kills you, but what could have caused the uh, extreme loss of blood could have been a million different things. Right. Not a very uh, medically advanced time. I you think could they have were still... natural causes of ap- apoplexy or you could have murderous causes. <laughs> and both could have resulted in apoplexy. So whether or not it was a cover up, they kind of went along with the doctor's um, analysis and kept the land. But it meant that Dostoevsky was now an orphan at age 17. Dostoevsky um, was already like in a very bad financial situation by the time his dad died. His letters home had always revolved around uh, urgent requests for money. And he was already in debt to other people. He uh, once borrowed money to send his dad a letter requesting more money. So this is not setting him up for a uh, very stable life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was terrible with money. Terrible. Like cannot underline. <laughs> no. And that's going to come up over and over again. Spoiler alert. He never gets better with the money. No. And, and he, and obviously like, you know, good for, for people who love literature because he's a genius, but <laughs> like you, if you're, if you are bad with money and, and struggle with money and are going to struggle your whole life, like going into literature I guess it's I guess I shouldn't talk because it's like going into journalism (laughs) at this current time in the United States but yeah it was not a good choice to go into literature because you know maybe some of the things we'll talk about but the censorship and how rigidly controlled that field was at at that time and still yeah and one of the factors that made literature really hard to get into was Russia had a very low literacy rate in general Mm, it was something like 15 percent of Russians yeah. were literate, whereas at the same time, Western countries all had majority literate populations. So not very right. many people could read. And as a result, the books that were being published were really expensive to buy. Right. And a lot of people think that that was because of the lack of education, but um, really it was people would get into school and they'd be like, it's Fyodor. No, it's Fyodor. And there would just be fights and people would just be <laughs> like, screw it. I'm going to go be a serf instead. Yeah, um, exactly. and that's actually what what caused the low literacy rates. But anyway, that's just a, <laughs> something I picked up in my research. I don't know if that was in yours. I did not see that. <laughs> okay, yeah, I probably have better research. <laughs> probably. So you had mentioned some of the demographic things, like with forty percent of the population being serfs. Saint Petersburg, where um, Dostoevsky spent like most of his life and career, uh, centered around Saint P- Petersburg, 
was also like a really fast growing city. Um, it was growing way faster than London and Paris. Uh, 70% of the city's residents were men. They were basically building the city from the ground up, filling the military ranks since Russia was already super militarized under Tsar Nicholas I at the time. And uh, you mentioned the censorship, like Nicholas made every facet of society basically resemble the workings of an army. Like all state uh, employees down to librarians and art teachers had to wear uniforms. Um, Military academies like the ones that... uh, Dostoevsky and his brother went to were super common um and oversight was just constant I think in the book that I read which I always forget to introduce at the beginning but it was uh The Sinner and the Saint by Kevin Birmingham um in that biography he mentions that like university inspectors would even watch students during meals and in their dormitories and like if you were disobedient you could be expelled or sent to your school student prison so like the the censorship and the oversight was constant um the uniforms you mentioned it, he took nicholas took us like a special interest in that as well like um redesigning them over and over again and going through a bunch of different inter- like he he put a very high value on appearance and um the you know down to the down to the buttons you know <sighs> that's crazy how does one person have that much time on their hands <laughs> yeah well like- and maybe that's part of what happened to him. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this world, um, you know, Dostoevsky was going to the Academy of Engineers. He graduated in 1843 and then spent a year in active service in the engineering corps before retiring. And he cited family reasons for his retirement, but he told his brother Mikhail the real reason he was finishing a book. Um, and that book was Poor Folk. It's an epistolary novel, meaning it's written in letter form. Um, And so this was something that he was working on for quite a while. Um, But like we talked about a little bit, like getting started as a writer was really difficult. The czar exercised strict control over uh, literature and considered virtually all secular literature dangerous. Um, He also had more than a dozen censorship offices that inspected pretty much all printed works. So that's just always something that's mind blowing to me as a journalist and a writer in America. It's like, oh, you have to send your work to the government censorship office and then have them approve it or not approve it. Yeah. In addition to being super anal about uniforms, apparently Tsar Nicholas also was really petty when it came to the newspapers. He shut one down for publishing a negative review of a play that he liked. (laughs) For, not for saying anything negative about him, but because... No. <laughs> the poor newspaper, they probably thought they were safe. They're like, this yeah. isn't about the Tsar at all. And yeah. then he reads it the next morning and he's like, no, I loved that play. You guys are done. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Game over. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty petty. Uh, honestly, like, I probably wouldn't even try to be a writer in that sort of environment. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. seem worth it. But luckily, uh, Dostoevsky soldiered on. He spent months and months revising Poor Folk. uh, And then a friend who lived with a different writer asked if he could read it. Um, This is in the spring of 1845. So about two years after Dostoevsky started it. So he brought them a copy and apparently they were obsessed with it and took turns reading it aloud all night long. Um, And then the author who lived with his friend took the manuscript straight to a guy named Vissarion Belinsky, who was a major literary critic at the time and told him he'd found the next Gogol, Gogol being like Russia's most famous writer at the time. Uh, Belinsky was skeptical at first because that's some some heavy praise. 
Yeah. Uh, but poor folk amazed him. And upon meeting Dostoevsky, he allegedly asked the young writer, do you, you yourself realize what it is you have written? Have you comprehended all the terrible truth that you have shown to us? Which I feel like is just, if you're a young writer uh, in your early 20s, I think at the time, that would be a lot to take in. I'd be like, calm down, bro. <laughs> I'd be like, I, I, I just wrote a thing. I didn't think yeah. you'd like it that much. <laughs> uh, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, I do. Totally. Belinsky became uh, a mentor to Dostoevsky and he introduced him to some new social circles full of like writer types and um, influential philosophical thinkers in the St. Petersburg community. Um, by the end of the year, it seemed like everyone was talking about poor folk, even though it hadn't been released yet. Fashionable men and women were eager to meet Dostoevsky at parties. Um, and a Apparently, no one could remember the last time a writer had burst onto the scene so spectacularly. That's a quote from Birmingham. So he was a big deal. Yeah. But he wasn't used to that world. Um, he became both arrogant and also self-conscious. Yeah. Uh, he was very aware that he held the lowest rank of heritable nobility. His dad was noble, and he was kind of like grandfathered into that system. But because of a recent decree from the Tsar, that nobility could no longer be passed down to his own children someday. So he was like the last noble in the family. They weren't super rich. And he was very aware of that. And there was one story about how he once met a refined young woman at a ball. And upon seeing her elegant clothes, he fainted. And then all his new friends made fun of him behind his back. So he was a little socially awkward. Yeah. Um, in early 1846, he sold another editor named Kraevsky. Oh, now I'm struggling with the Russian names. I think he you got it. <laughs> he sold him his second novel, The Double, which was about a man kind of going off of this theme of imposter syndrome. Uh, it's about a man who meets someone who could be his twin one night. He looks the same, has the same name, has the same job, but The Double is better at everything. And the main character's friends and colleagues start preferring the other man. And he eventually like edges the main character out of his own life and he ends up insane. So this book actually, even though it sounds really interesting, I haven't read this one, but it apparently got really negative reviews for being too surreal. Yeah. And Dostoevsky, like during this period was writing constantly, uh, producing tons of stories, but Belinsky and the other editors weren't delighted by his work anymore. He wasn't the new Gogol anymore. <laughs> Yeah, didn't Belinsky say that he regretted that he had said that or, yeah. Yeah, he regretted calling him a genius, which is kind of harsh. Um, so all of this didn't help his financial situation. And Dostoevsky, of course, had been living well outside of his means during this time, like going to all these fancy parties and gambling and uh, said he even patronized prostitutes. So he was in a lot of debt all the time. Yeah, He also fell into a deep depression and was very physically ill too but his doctors couldn't figure out what it was because of course you know 1800s they didn't have a good diagnosis for it um it later turned out to be epilepsy and this is something he suffered from his entire life um but yeah it was in the early stages at this point around this time he was also meeting a lot of young revolutionary types and was ushered into one group that would be really consequential it was formed by a man named mikhail petrushevsky um, and he advocated for all sorts of things like utopian socialism and representative democracy 
a crazy idea on that last one. Yeah. They, his group was known as the Petrashevsky Circle. Uh, Jostoyevsky and his brother Mikhail started attending their weekly meetings. Um, and one of the issues that was really near and dear to Dostoevsky's heart that they opposed was serfdom. He had his own personal reasons for being against this. He also just like saw the obvious um, unethicalness of, of basically enslaving people and treating them super cruelly. Yeah. Uh, and apparently during one meeting, someone asked what would happen if emancipating the serfs turned out to be impossible by any means other than revolt. And Dostoevsky allegedly shouted, then let there be revolt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was also um, really opposed to the censorship. Those are like his two main things. Yeah. And I feel like he was a little more bold than some of the, the Petrushevists. Because um, he like, he at different points took some concrete steps to like try to wade into the distribution of banned materials. Um, so I don't think he was necessarily a leader in the Petrashevsky circle, but I think he was a little more, um, brave than some of the other guys. He was, he was very careful. I think that, um, that was, uh, one of the things, uh, later, you know, after he was arrested was that he, um, kind of challenged them on that. Basically I, I, you know, took no, I committed no crimes, you know, I took no actions that were illegal. He's basically being charged with thinking the wrong things, um, which is kind of a very, um, Orwellian 1984. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, um, idea, but something that happened in real history. Yeah. Yeah. So in April of 1849, uh, more than 200 people were arrested in connection with the Petrashevsky circle. Um, one of their members had been a spy for the government and ratted them all out. Uh, and Dostoevsky was woken up in his room by police one morning, who then searched his belongings before taking him to jail. Uh, he was waiting for Mikhail to be brought in since his brother was also involved in the group. But then the guards brought in his little brother, Andre, instead, which I thought was wild. <laughs> this, this poor kid's like looking totally confused. Yeah. And Dostoevsky realized like, they'd made a mistake they brought in the wrong brother um but he actually asked his brother to stay quiet so mikhail um whose wife had just get away given the no not get away but like his wife had just had their third child so he was like yo andre like stay quiet for a little bit so mikhail can like get things in order for his family okay interesting yeah. so yeah so um they were imprisoned for months and like you said like they kept interrogating him and he kind of like he kind of defended it. He's like, I didn't actually do anything. I just thought the wrong things. Yeah. Um, one of the things that he got in trouble for was like reading banned works by Belinsky, who was actually dead at that, that time. Um, and they kept interrogating him. They wanted to like know if Dostoevsky knew about other criminal conspiracies, um, specifically Nikolai Speshnev, who ran a smaller, more secretive group that Dostoevsky was actually a part of, but he never like gave up any goods on them. Right. Um, the Speshnev circle committed more than just thought crimes. They actually took steps to gather and distribute anti-government material. And, and they were about uh, ending serfdom, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. They wanted to uh, end serfdom. They promoted socialism. Um, and, and one of the things that they did was they actually started assembling a printing press, which 
was a huge no-no in Russia. Um, They lucked out though, because when one member of the circle was arrested, uh, police like sealed off his apartment, but then the guy's family snuck in, took apart the printing press and like disposed of all the evidence. So they didn't get them on that. I don't think. Yeah. But yeah. So, um, a prison, uh, not a, not a fun time, obviously, uh, especially not in czarist Russia. Uh, they had rats, there were mm. like screams and sobs from the cells and just right yeah. he was kept in isolation. Most of the time he just got like yeah. really weak and like very mentally unwell. He was like hallucinating. Finally in December, just three days before Christmas, after eight months in prison, uh, the Petrushevists were taken from the jail by carriage to a location for public execution. They even got lined up for a firing squad. The drums yeah. were playing. And then at the last second, the drummer stopped because a carriage or like a horse came riding up. Well, Dostoevsky, he fully expected that he was about to die, right? Yeah. He, he was making it peace. I mean, he was not expecting a reprieve or anything. Someone shouted, load weapons. Yeah. <laughs> like it was about to happen. And then a messenger came galloping up and delivered a letter from the czar himself commuting the sentence. And I think like this was basically all a show. Like the czar never intended to execute them, right? I think that Dostoevsky believed that he was going to be it. No, yeah, I think think they thought they were going to die. But I think that the lining them up, the firing squad, and then the last second letter being like, you know what, never mind, I'm a benevolent czar you're just going to go to yeah Siberia. i mean if he or i mean if if that was his intention that's a pretty bold move <laughs> like <laughs> to to uh um have it all hinge on this one letter getting through <laughs> getting through on time <laughs> as in a bunch of people die <laughs> they were really lucky that the government yeah. was working fast that day <laughs> yeah yeah good thing there were no floods or like a bridge was out or something right so Dostoevsky and a bunch of the other Petrushevists were instead sentenced to four years hard labor in Siberia, which would yeah. then be followed by a term of military service. Yeah. So I'd always kind of heard of being exiled to Siberia, um, yeah. but I didn't realize like how huge of a system it was back then. Yeah. It's, it sort of entered the lexicon as kind of shorthand for, you know like the part of the office no one goes to or like (laughs) right (laughs) very casual yeah Um, but basically Russia didn't really have a prison system like we think of now I guess um sending convicts to Siberia was pretty much the only punishment for serious crimes other than execution this Um, is um if you know for Game of Thrones fans I think this is the serving on the wall yeah right this was how um martin translated that into his work was this would be the equivalent and it literally was like a fortress back then they went to something that was called a fortress in a city called omsk and just the exile system was huge between the 1600s and uh 1917 at the fall of the romanov dynasty around three million people were exiled yeah it also became more useful as the empire grew because the convicts could be used to mine a bunch of resources like iron and gold and other metals. Um, they essentially built the city of Omsk, which was one of the main exile locations. Um, and it was kind of like a very um, sketchy uh, system in more ways than one. Like uh, 
there wasn't a lot of judicial like process. So you could basically be sent to Siberia without ever being convicted of a crime, even though they called them convicts. Right. Um, and it was a really common way to like send disobedient serfs away, uh, yeah. political agitators, striking workers, and even the wives of men who were like convicted, quote unquote, had to go with them sometimes. So it was just this crazy, huge system. Um, a lot of them had to make the journey on foot uh, and died because that's a really long, cold journey. Dostoevsky was uh, comparative lucky, comparatively lucky. He got to ride in a sleigh and the journey only took a few weeks. There was also a thing about the like face tattoos. So some of the convicts got branded and tattooed on their faces so they could never blend in if they escaped or like went back to normal society. Yeah. So it's just like this brutal system. Which is still a thing, right? The face tattoo from prison. I think it's oh, a the, little more the voluntary can't see now. that I've got the face tattoo from, <laughs> um, from your yeah, time from in my Siberia. Game. Yeah, well, just, you know, being in prison. <laughs> I'm super tough, so. We're definitely going to need to uh, include a picture of you yeah, with this just episode. So, yeah, if you could, just so. Um, or basically just like I'm like Mike Tyson, basically, is what I look like. You know, that's so. a really uncanny comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, now you can't unsee it. I can't unsee it. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, uh, Siberia was probably even rougher than uh, the prison that Dostoevsky was waiting in. Uh, before he was sent off there, uh, the violence was apparently constant and often arbitrary. Uh, like one of the majors would rush into the barracks at night and in the morning flog anyone who had been sleeping on the wrong side. Yeah. So it's like, no matter what you do, you're screwed. But it was also a really big learning experience for Dostoevsky. He had become famous for writing poor folk, uh, but he'd never been really close to poor people until this point. And he wanted to take advantage of that. And he was particularly drawn to murderers. He wanted to hear their stories. He wanted to hear about their crimes. And the way that they told their stories interested him as much as the actual crimes. Like some of them recounted their stories with a helpless attitude. Others would like laugh maniacally. Uh, others had no emotion at all. And he was like really intrigued by this. What do you think that was? I think he just always had a fascination with like the psychology of people, especially like the downtrodden or like societal castoffs. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I see in Dostoevsky's work is really that, and and what intrigues me um, as a reader about it is that it's uh, this the story is very much um, secondary. I mean, the story is just a means. Uh, by which he explores human nature, I think, and, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, the the Russian people and the Russian history and, and Russian culture, he kind of um, is, uh, is almost uh, like a psychologist in the way that he approaches that. And I think um, uncovers a lot of, of truth in that, in, in his work that he does. Um, but no, I think that he, uh, yeah, I think you said it really well that he's very intrigued by people. And that's maybe like his um, greatest thing. You know, Tolstoy was a, uh, were they contemporaries? Or Tolstoy was a little bit before him? I think Tolstoy was like already 
um, yeah. publishing when he came up. Let me see what yeah. those dates. But he was famously like a staunch pacifist. Tolstoy mm. was. I don't think Dostoevsky was a pacifist, but I think that he was as staunch and like a, a humanist, I guess, but not philosophically humanist necessarily, but just in terms of that hum the value of of any human life. Interesting. And I did look it up and Tolstoy was actually born seven years after him. So yes, really? contemporaries. Oh, okay. I didn't think they were contemporary. Interesting. Okay. That's great. I definitely thought he was before him too. Yeah. But yeah, and you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like he's he's more interested in the humans behind the crime than the crime itself. And uh, Crime and Punishment is the only Dostoevsky work I've read, but I read that in high school. And I was kind of taken aback because in modern literature, like the emphasis of the story is often on the crime and like the mystery and everything. But Crime and Punishment is totally about the criminal. effects of the crime on the criminal yeah i think that was something i didn't really appreciate as a high schooler reading that and now i want to go back and and re-examine it with this background knowledge that i have now on dostoevsky yeah and i don't know if um you know if it would be a tie or if more people would consider crime and punishment to be um dostoevsky's you know greatest work or the brothers Karamazov, uh, which is my favorite of his by the way but um, if you went crime and punishment, you know, that's kind of interesting. It's a foil to Tolstoy with war and peace. I do think, oh. and it's interesting that that biography you mentioned kind of uh, used that as its linchpin, that, that novel crime and punishment. Because I do think that, you know, whether you consider Karamazov or um, crime and punishment his, his greatest achievement, I do think uh, crime and punishment does maybe get more directly to the center of his kind of uh, greatest philosophical kind of message. Um, and, and War and Peace was definitely Tolstoy's, I think. Interesting. Okay, you'll have to... In terms of his pacifism, yeah. You'll have to tell me more about the psychological message when we get to the writing crime and punishment part. Yeah. Because uh, that's still several years off. Um, but one of the things that I thought was great about his time in Siberia was that he managed to take notes um like he would steal pen and, and paper and scribble like little bits of dialogue basically like he would yeah. write down phrases that the convicts said or like jokes or you know proverbs and stuff um basically just capturing the way that convicts or or poor people talk to each other which i think was really beneficial for him in his writings after siberia um and he also had like a a kind of great epiphany um the the men did this thing around christmas time where they put on a, a theater basically they turned one of the barracks into an auditorium uh, they made minimalist sets and, and gathered instruments that they could find and put on a show and watching it uh Dostoevsky was really struck by the way all the men even the murderers and and those with branded faces would laugh and shout encouragement at each other um and their eyes would like widen when the story got to really tense parts uh, and he felt this kind of kinship finally with his his fellow prisoners, realizing that within a hardened murderer, um, there could be an actor or a really talented dancer. Um, and I think that was a really profound experience and, and really influenced the way he wrote about criminals later. Yeah. Um, so when his four years were up, 
the blacksmith finally struck off his ankle shackles uh, and he left the prison making a vow, I will no longer write trifles, which I feel like he didn't really write trifles before, but he clearly like had this renewed purpose. I think it like um, he, he he really never came back and correct me if I'm wrong, but like he, he never came back to some of the early stuff that the critics didn't didn't like either but uh some of the more fantastic kind of stuff and some of the supernatural things that he was uh i mean everything after that period was just like gritty realism i mean there was a lot of like spiritual kind of stuff going on but everything that could be anything that happens um could be kind of understood as just someone's belief of something occurring and not not actual ghosts or phantasms being being actually involved I think you're probably right. I don't think he ever did anything as surreal as like the double or anything later on in his career. Not, not in, uh, again, in, in like this actually happened, Um, but people had visions and maybe, you know, often drunken kind of stupors and things, but um, yeah. Yeah. But like you said, kind of like within the realm of regular hallucinations or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, after the four years, he wasn't completely done. He spent another six years uh, with the Siberian Army Corps. It didn't seem like they did a whole lot of fighting. It was like mostly just drills. And then he did like some tutoring on the side, uh, which was how he met a woman named Maria uh, Iseva. Um, She was married at the time and he started tutoring her son, Pasha. Uh, and then her husband died and they like immediately got hitched in 1857. And then two years later, he was able to return. He's to, older. Uh, yeah, but it wasn't like, a. okay. The thing about doing this show is that usually there's very inappropriate age gaps. This yeah. one was pleasantly surprising. Cause I think she was like 28 and he was in his early thirties at the time. Okay. He was like yeah. 36 or something. So okay. I'm like, okay, acceptable. Yeah, not too creepy at all. No. (laughs) So they finally got to return to St. Petersburg, or he took her there for the first time. Um, And, you know, after a decade gone, the city was completely different. You know, huge factories and apartment buildings. Uh, Tsar Nicholas was dead and his son, Alexander II, had started an era of comparatively liberal reform. Um, He was bringing serfdom to an end in a way. It was like, you know we're going to end serfdom, but the serfs have to buy their freedom and the land. And that was a process that could take a lifetime. So baby steps, I guess. Better than nothing. (laughs) And even though Dostoevsky was like able to take notes and stuff in in prison, um, he had been out of practice writing for a decade and kind of isolated from the literary world. So I think he was a little frustrated trying to get back into it. He he didn't really uh, get back into his writing flow right away. But his brother, Mikhail, who had been working in the tobacco business, I don't think Mikhail ever went to Siberia, by the way. I think he kind of like escaped the worst of the punishment. So he'd been home and he had decided to start a journal. Of course, he had to apply for permission from the Petersburg Censorship Committee first, um, but he got permission and then Fyodor joined him. He started writing about his experience in Siberia calling it notes from a dead house and he knew he wouldn't be able to write this as nonfiction, so he basically just sold it as fiction and this like was a smash hit when they serialized yeah. it in the journal um leo tolstoy there we go his contemporary uh allegedly read it and called it essential 
and wrote to a friend, if you see Dostoyevsky, tell him I love him. Mm. So he was a big fan. Yeah, probably the only time he ever used that word love. <laughs> yeah, Russians, especially that era of Russians, probably not known for being the most affectionate of people. So. But I'm always surprised with these like um, 1800s and even like early 1900s writers, like dudes were way uh, freer with telling their friends they loved them back then. <laughs> I kind of well, miss what's that. So inter- that's what's so interesting that um, about Dostoevsky and and Tolstoy, I think as well. Um, but just their well, their love of literature, but their love of kind of ideas. You know, there's kind of this um, bonding that happens over uh, intellectualism and intelligentsia. Um, that's you know has nothing to do with anything physical, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really cool about that period. And it's kind of sad in a way that it's so unexpected to me. Um, but I really like that they're so free with like showing how passionate they are about these ideas and these works. And like right. one of one of the things that Dostoevsky read when he was in prison that he really liked was Jane Eyre, which yeah. shocked me. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And then and then just completely cold and unfeeling in their personal I know. Yeah. His marriage was uh, not a happy one. Maria was apparently always irritated and seemed chronically sick. Uh, And Dostoevsky probably naively did not anticipate how hard it would be for him in his debt-ridden situation to provide for a wife and a stepson. Mm -hmm. And they spent a lot of their marriage apart. In the early 60s, he made a lot of lengthy trips to Western Europe where of course he gambled away all his money and had to mooch off his family and even wrote to his wife asking her to return some of the money he'd given her before leaving on one trip. Like, can you imagine writing that letter to your wife, Frankie? No, (laughs) I wouldn't expect to get anything. Yeah. (laughs) He also uh, had an affair with a young woman named Paulina Suslova, uh, who had previously submitted a story to the Brothers magazine about a young woman who flees a loveless marriage and finds a career as a teacher. That That's maybe pretty surreal for fiction to be <laughs> going to this torrid life as a teacher. <laughs> sexy, sexy life of a school teacher. Well, Waking you know, up early, getting roasted by teenagers. <laughs> we've come like a, a long way since then. Like in the 1800s, that was the ideal, right? You know, you yeah. write about a woman who gets to have a career and not be married. Right, right wild stuff wow the escapism <laughs> of this story is so fantastic <laughs> can you even imagine no I can't. no i can't <laughs> how absurd then in april of 1863 uh unfortunately the czar banned the dostoevsky brothers journal uh they'd been in the crosshairs for a while because uh when dostoevsky came back from siberia it was like a turbulent political time there was a wave of violent rebellions going on And it seemed like Dostoevsky was like personally very turned off by one of the group known as the young or as young Russia. Um, They left him a pamphlet once that he was like, yo, this is really, really dangerous stuff. It had lines like, you know, we'll move against the winter palace to wipe out all who dwell there and rivers of blood will flow and perhaps even innocent victims will perish. And he was like, this is not the way my guy. Um, And then fires started popping up. Uh, first in uninhabited buildings but then like there was a major one that tore through a market in the city and 
demolished apartments and stuff and thousands of people ended up homeless yeah. uh, but when that happened even though radicals seemed like the obvious culprits the Dostoevsky brothers wrote an article pointing out that there was no evidence linking young Russia to the fires so they kind of like cautioned jumping to conclusions that was banned before making it to print. But then in April, the brothers published an article that supported Poland's guerrilla war against Russia. And the SARS saw that and immediately banned the journal, uh, which was really, really sad for uh, Fyodor, God, at that time. And also for Mikhail, because like he had a family to feed, like Dostoevsky had a stepson and a wife, but he was right. always kind of financially a shit show. They weren't counting on too much. Yeah. No, Mikhail had yeah. lots of little kids. Found, found money if they ever got anything from him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the journal had like been really successful in just its few short years. Like it had more than 4,000 subscribers, which put it in competition with long established literary journals at the time. And yeah. it was just gone. Dostoevsky's wife was also increasingly sick uh, at this time and died in the spring of 1864. Uh, he was sad, but like we've talked about, they had kind of a loveless marriage yeah. in a way. Um, they, were, they were not happy together. It was very unhealthy. Yeah. Um, within weeks of that though, Mikhail also died, his brother, and that like tore him apart. Yeah. Like Mikhail was the only person that ever really cared about him. Yeah, I mean, Mikhail was really his his um, his sounding board, right? Like a stable point in his life through all of his, you know, all the things that happened to him in his life, all his mental health challenges. Uh, Mikhail had kind of been, and, and really even how we understand some of what was going on with him was in his letters to his brother. He was his big brother. He was yeah. everything to him. and A, a rock. Yeah. In, in an otherwise chaotic life. Very much so. Yeah. So that was a huge loss. The loss of his brother was one thing, but it also left him with uh, enormous personal and business debts. So for once, uh, his debt wasn't his own fault. His economic situation, though, after this made him a prime target for this super predatory publisher named Stolovsky. Um, So Stolovsky made Dostoevsky an offer to publish a three volume edition of everything he'd ever written, which sounds really cool, but the sum he offered was teeny tiny. Um, So Dostoevsky turned it down, but a few days later, some stranger he'd never seen before approached him demanding payment for all of his debts that he'd racked up until then. Um, The government, I guess, had recently allowed uh, these things called promissory notes to be issued to basically anyone, and creditors could sell or trade the notes basically your debts and then someone you'd never met could come by and demand that you pay it or you'd get sent to debtor's prison sounds like a great system yeah super yeah. <laughs> not sketchy at all we we do have debt buying you know now as well. yeah but i feel like a debtor's prison's not so much a thing not so much a thing you just get i would think a bunch of phone calls yeah which are really annoying you know yeah. <laughs> So it looked like somebody had bought Dostoevsky's debt and was turning the screws possibly on Stolovsky's behalf because then he had no choice but to go back to this publisher and accept his deal. But now the guy also wanted a new novel from Dostoevsky, at least 160 pages, and he set a deadline of November 1st, 1866. Uh, Otherwise, he would own the rights to anything he wrote for the next nine years and he wouldn't pay him. So great deal. Yeah. Great deal for him. Yeah. Great deal for him. He was probably hoping that Dostoevsky wouldn't deliver. Yeah. Really smart. 
I could totally like that. You could totally see him like, you know, just getting the calendars like fussed up and like turning it in on November 2nd or something <laughs> and being like, we good? Like, <laughs> yep. And then after that, he just has a, like a flood of like the greatest writing ever and gets no money from it. Like that would totally be his luck. That's yeah. That's totally his, his, <laughs> that's totally on brand for Dostoevsky. <laughs> So while he had this like other deadline looming, he got entranced by this shiny new idea Yeah, uh, because back when he'd been working on the journal with his brother, he'd stumbled upon a collection of stories about infamous trials, mainly in France. Uh, He was like looking for more material for the journal. And one of the first stories was about a man. And I meant to look up the pronunciation of this, but I think it's Pierre Francois Lassenaire. Yeah, I think it's uh, Lassenaire. Yeah. Bossinar. Yeah. No, it did, you did it fine. Um, but I just, uh, additional context here, right? Because um, cr- reporting on local crimes and local disasters was part of the censorship. Like things that happened in Russia, you know, people couldn't print. Like there was like a flood in St. Petersburg that just like almost destroyed the city. Yeah. And it, there's not a single story that ever appeared in a newspaper about it. Which I feel like is still a thing in Russia today. Yeah. Right. And yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but that's like crimes that happen in other places, like those could get through. But yes, yeah, those are OK to report on. Yeah. Especially Western places. Right. That's probably why. Yeah. France yeah. is cool to make fun of. Uh, so this is one of the first stories that he stumbled upon. And um, like the accompanying illustration was of this old woman cowering in fear as a man lunged toward her with like what looks like an ice pick. So Lassenar and accomplice brutally murdered this woman and her son, took their money, and then tried to rob several large banks. It was like part of a lifetime of of crime for him. It was a lot of like petty stuff early on, culminating with this this huge murder. Um, But this dude wasn't like most killers. He came from a well-off family uh, who lost their money after some bad investments. He was educated. He was stylish and cultured. And when he was put on trial in 1835, apparently women flocked to the courtroom. So he was like the original, like hot serial killer, basically. Very cerebral, right? Like he was, he was a writer or at least a self-proclaimed writer. And he was like Uh, very intellectual, like would read like philosophy, wrote in and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 He, he was like, he was educated and he was a snob. And he acted like it and he like talked a lot during his own trial like yeah. trying to defend himself or he would like correct people when they said that something happened and he like just incriminated himself further because he'd be like well actually i did this too right right he and he sort of like um you know ha- had all kinds of different like bizarre you know self-professed motivations for like he you know, tried to say it was sort of like populist motivated to where he's trying to like make a statement about, you know, the the, the deprivation of French society or something. Um, but yeah, just a really bizarre kind of guy. Yeah. And I think that's probably what uh, appealed to him about, uh, appealed to Dostoevsky about Lassenar was just the weird psychological stuff going on with him. Yeah. So he he appeared to like be heavily inspired by this guy and for crime and punishment for crime and punishment. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
there's a lot of parallels that you can draw between Lassenar and uh, Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov, yeah. Yeah, which is the protagonist in Crime and Punishment. Uh, Raskolnikov is kind of the impoverished former student uh, who plots to kill a pawnbroker. Yeah, he he justifies his crimes through a variety of of rationales. so yeah, so there's a, a lot of parallels there. Um, and also I'm sure like his time in Siberia helped Dostoevsky with the the various motivations of Raskolnikov. Um, and he kind of imagined this this novel as an introspective murderer's diary with the, the focus on the second guessing, the fear and the despair that happened after the crime. Obviously it's been a long time since I've, I've read Crime and Punishment. So I was like doing the refresher course. Um, I saw that some people were, saying that it was kind of a critique of extreme nihilism and utilitarianism. Um, what did you get from it? Um, well, like I said before, I do think that one of Dostoevsky's driving um, philosophical pillars was his belief in the value of human life. Um, and so I think that what intrigued him about Lassaner and um, the murderers that he talked to in Siberia and then wanting to uh, do this story from the perspective of the killer. Um, because I think that um, when he first, like it went through a bunch of different drafts, right? I think initially the story was just told from uh, the aftermath mm-hmm. and and just kind of exploring that fallout. But like he would, he slowly kind of inched it up. And then the the final published version shows this extremely, at least for that time, like grisly and graphic and visceral uh, recounting of the actual murder. And it, that's kind of like, seems contradictory, right? It's like, okay, he values human life, but he his one of his greatest works is centered around an extremely gruesome murder. Um, but I think that that uh, to him was um, just like the ultimate kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of, question or experiment i guess to try to uh, because he does value human life so much that what does that do to a person's soul and a person's psyche and mind um to uh to end a life mm-hmm. um in, in a in a you know and not not even as a soldier where you're shooting someone or there's justification for it or whatever but in a selfish an extremely personal visceral way with your hands to actually, um, you know, take someone's life uh, by your own personal choice, not in self-defense, not, you know. Um, So I think that to him was, uh, and, you know, like, did he answer it? Like, that's up to each reader or whatnot. Um, Is it all just a mishmash of like a crazy person's ramblings? Um, But that was his goal, I think. Almost as a psychologist or almost as like a scientist, as almost as a, a thought experiment, an extremely extended experiment is is what does that do to a person to um do what i think to dostoevsky was an unspeakable act that's a really good interpretation of it and i think that explains why when it was finally serialized it was such a sensation in in russia as with most of his works, it was serialized. Um, part one appeared in the January 1866 edition of the Russian Herald. The opening section was 85 pages long. So it ended up being, I think, like close to a dozen installments. 
depending on what uh, edition of the book you get, it's around like 700 pages now. So this is a very long work and it was released in monthly installments, but yeah, it immediately caused a sensation um, from the the graphic murder to, you know, the questions that it poised about humanity. And one reviewer said, Dostoevsky writes with a truthfulness that shakes the soul. So readers were very, very strongly impacted by this. Even though it was a huge success though, he was still under enormous amounts of stress because he'd been devoting all his time to keeping up with installments of Crime and Punishment. And by October 1st, he still hadn't written a single line of the novel he owed Stolovsky. Of course not. Yeah. Talk about really uh, pushing your deadline there. Yeah. And he was also having seizures regularly too. So, you know, no real problems in his life. Um, so his friend convinced him to hire a young woman to work as a stenographer, taking notes while he dictated his novel and then typing it up for him at home. The friend thought that would be faster than if Dostoevsky tried to write all 160 pages by himself. So he did it. The stenographer's name was Anna Grigorievna Snitkina, who was 21 years old, uh, a Ukrainian woman whose late More father- for this show. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) You can tell by the way I said that, that, you know, a little something, something's going to happen. She was a Ukrainian woman. uh, So that's what led me to believe that Ukraine was a region of Russia back then. Uh, Her late father had been a huge fan of Dostoevsky. So this was like a really exciting job for her. But her first impression was that he was moody and unhappy, which seems on brand. Yeah. I mean, like, good call. Yeah. Yeah. No, no lies detected. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe should have zeroed in on that red flag there. With your gut, Anna. Yeah. But they did get into a good writing flow. And as the weeks progressed, she even felt comfortable sharing her opinions on the story with him. Uh, And he took them seriously. And one of Dostoevsky's friends even referred to her as the author's zealous collaborator. And I think he was joking, but like they took it to heart. Um, The novel was called The Gambler. And was based, ironically, on his relations with Paulina, that lady he met in uh, Western Europe, and the psychology of compulsive gambling, which he knew very well. I love, I love the Kenny Rogers version of that novel, by the way. <sighs> way over my head. Oh, <laughs> the famous song called The Gambler. Damn, I need to get my Kenny Rogers uh, knowledge up to par. Yeah, yeah, you definitely should listen to it and then try to pretend that it has anything to do with this Russian 18th, 19th century, (laughs) mid-19th century novel that was written under duress. So they finally had their last uh, writing session on October 29th, and by that point it was obvious that Dostoevsky had fallen in love with Anna. Uh, He asked when he could see her again, he invited her to a party with all his literary friends, and finally he insisted that she invite him over to meet her family, so... He, he really liked her. And he's like 45 at this point. So that's the, the less appropriate right. uh, relationship. But not unusual for the time, right? Or, yeah. No, this is honestly the expected relationship right. of the time. Right. Um, so on November 1st, the day of the deadline, he goes to deliver the, the novel to Stolovsky. But this dude left town and had not authorized any of his staff to accept the manuscript. So Dostoevsky's like freaking out, figuring it's a plot to screw him out of the next nine years of his work. Right. Just like you, you saw that coming. Yeah. Uh, so he searched high and low for a solution. He finally uh, got in touch with a lawyer who suggested he deliver it to the police so they could register it, I guess. He did that and it all worked out. And then he uh, proposed to Anna 
Her mom wasn't happy because uh, Dostoevsky was much older. He was sick with epilepsy and he was constantly in debt. Yeah, just a couple of small issues she had. Yeah, not the uh, most ideal suitor, I guess. But Dostoevsky must have been like a real smooth talker. Smooth. I think he was, yeah, when he wanted to I be. I mean, that's the only thing that explains how he got everyone to give him money and stuff. So he like went to ask for her daughter's hand in marriage. And apparently the speech he gave was so sincere that it brought her to tears and washed away all of her, her misgivings about the relationship. Um, so yeah, so they were originally scheduled to be married February 12th, 1867. Uh, this is where Tyler Clausen would give his spiel about, you know, when you get married and you haven't even been dating a full year, this was like what, three months of dating. Yeah. Insert Tyler Clausen rant about the proper duration of a courtship. Pull it out of the old episode and, and <laughs> drop it in. It, I'm sure it'll all sound the same. But yeah, to that point, I mean, also uh, he, you know, this is going back a couple decades now. But when he, or maybe a, a decade, but when he was arrested and and being interrogated, I don't think we talked too much about. But he was interrogated like multiple, multiple times for months, right? Mm-hmm. And he was guilty. Um, But he was able to convince them that he basically, you know, uh, he he talked, he did talk, he talked and talked and talked and talked, but without, you know, incriminating himself in an obvious way, you know, I think it it just ended up being, uh, you know, political pressure, basically, that forced them to have to do something or sort of make an example of these people. But Mm -hmm. um, I think he you know, talks his way out of that situation about as best as anybody could have. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that one, but I think he definitely was a charismatic dude. And like, when we're reading the biography about him, we're like, wow, this dude seems like a total shit show, but yeah, yeah, complete (laughs) disaster. But yeah, he presented himself much better, I guess. I guess. So their wedding was originally supposed to be February 12th, 1867, a Sunday, Uh, But he had a seizure just days before and was too weak to leave the house. So like his health is really not doing great by this point in his life. So they pushed it back to a Wednesday. The logic being they really wanted to squeeze it in before Lent. Uh, So they did it. They had a lovely ceremony. And the next few days uh, before Lent started were spent partying with friends and family. So they got it in right before the the church bells. (laughs) Brand for them right in the nick of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They set off on a honeymoon in Europe that was originally supposed to last only three months, but would continue for more than four years. Uh, That may have also been a way to dodge his creditors, uh, because during the early years of their marriage, they were still not financially secure at all. Um, They had four children born between 1868 and 1875, but only two survived past infancy. Um, they moved around a lot, partly because of their financial struggles. Um, and then in the early 1870s, they kind of like got in a more financially solvent position. Um, they founded the Dostoevsky Publishing Company, which was pretty successful. Uh, he also got a salaried position at another journal called The Citizen, where he published a column called The Diary of a Writer or a Writer's Diary, depending on the translation. Um, and this is basically like it's it's now I think a three volume like book compilation of all of his essays and short stories um but this is something that like he really got famous for in his later life and a lot of respect for 
contempor- uh, contemporaneously, like people would actually write him letters and, and like even the czar was a big fan of the diary of a writer. Yeah. Um, but his essays were all about like society, religion, politics, ethics, wide ranging subjects. And he continued to work on it for the rest of his life. Have you read anything from a, a writer's diary, Tyler? I haven't. It's not like a memoir in any way. It's just like his his greatest works from a journal, basically, right? It's, it sounds similar to, but but it's not the same as uh, what still that deal that Stolovsky had for him, which was just like a three volume compilation of all his work. This was different. This was the later version. It was yeah, like- but it. Um, I, I will just say that Russia, culturally, I think in Russia, um, and you know, it's something that took shape after Dostoevsky. But um, the the um, the can their literary canon is uh, foundational to you know Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and and all these other writers. But um, is it's a source of uh, immense national pride, and is I mean like. Yeah, like oh yeah, I read *Crime and Punishment* in high school or whatnot. Like it's it's an aspect <laughs> of our ed- education, but it's foundational in Russia. Um, Do we have a a foundational work in America? Really, is there anything to compare it to? Of of a single work? Yeah, of something that is like we have that much national pride in. I feel like we don't. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, they're definitely authors, right? American authors, you know, I, I guess like, you know, books like Catcher in the Rye kind of come to mind, like, uh, uh, um, oh, shoot, uh, The Great Gatsby, you know, mm. things like that, that kind of encapsulate a moment in American history. But um, I think that you could, yeah, you could probably you know, have a list of 10 or 20 names that would capture most of it and in, in kind of form an American literary canon as well. But it's not as foundational, I don't think, to our education as it is in Russia. Yeah. And so um, I was just, that was all to say that I think for this time, like, you know, famous writers were sort of like the movie stars of the day, at least in Russia. So that's kind of... Um, where some of that cachet and kind of interest probably came from is um, it would be like, you know, people today who are huge fans of LeBron James or whatever, wanting to, you know, being interested in a documentary of his, you know, workout process or whatever, you know, like when you're such a big, when you're such a big fan of a person or idolize someone so much, like you do want to know everything about, you know, what goes into their greatness. We were born way too late. Like if, if we'd been alive in the 1800s, we could have oh, yeah. been invited have to been. the salons and stuff. <laughs> for we would sure. have been a big deal. I know you had mentioned the brothers Karamazov, Karamazov mm-hmm. earlier. Um, was there, I, I know he wrote this in the late seventies as well. Was there any uh, particular thought you wanted to share about that work? I, it's one of his big ones. It's crime and punishment. Um, Karamazov, uh, The Idiot was another big one. Yeah, it was the first one of his that I read, um, you know, after school. Um, I actually uh, first 
was kind of introduced to it through um, a completely different book I was reading, Philip Yancey. I don't know if you ever um, heard of him, but he's like a Christian author. He was the editor of Christianity Today for a long time. Um, and he he had in one of his books, he had um, a few chapters on, uh, I think, just the this one like really famous chapter from the brothers Karamazov uh, called The Grand Inquisitor. Which is basically, so basically there's, um, you're never going to believe it, but the book's about uh, these brothers. and What? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, what? Um, which is, it is funny, actually, because crime and punishment doesn't really, I mean, it talks about the crime, but doesn't really talk too much about the punishment. It's all about what's happening in this dude's head. But, um, but no, so it is all about these three brothers. Um and they have uh, extremely distinct personalities. So like the the older brother is like very, the oldest brother is like very sens, like it's, uh, this is like a thing in Russian culture at the time, but he was a sensualist, like that was a thing. But like all about experience, drinking, you know, sex, like just that's the ultimate in life is, um, and really I think, and you know, coming after this deep dive into Dostoevsky, I think you can very clearly see like these brothers were different aspects of his own personality. Um, the middle brother is this very, he's an atheist and, a, and an intellectual and a very rigid kind of materialist type person. And then the youngest brother is this just extremely like pure, um, he's a monk, you know, <laughs> he's, he's just this extremely kind, pure hearted person who is very uh, earnestly religious, but not in like a asshole way. Um, and uh, where was I going with all that? I think that uh, again, it's, it's the, the, you know, there's an interesting story that's kind of uh, discussing some uh, of the, the past and, and what's, uh, you know, some of the baggage and, and stuff that happens with this family and the, and really the collapse of this family. Um, but uh, it, it's again, really just him using this story as just sort of a bare bones almost kind of framework to explore um, these different, uh, I think aspects of his own psyche in a lot of ways, uh, but definitely different aspects of uh, Russian society and culture and intelligentsia um, and the ways that they kind of interplay and nobody really wins you know that's that's what to me is really um uh interesting and, and really non non-american or non-western in the storytelling is that there you know you've got these distinct um philosophies and these distinct modes of living um in very direct conflict um and especially and again, because I was introduced to it from a like evangelical Christian perspective. So mm -hmm. to me, the um, conflict between the middle brother Ivan's atheism and uh, the younger brother Alyosha's um, uh, relig religiosity, you know, like someone has to win one way or the other. I'm, you know, if, if it's going to be the, intelli the intellectual side, like I'm okay with that as well, because i it's coming from a genius, right? Um, but it, uh, yeah, it. No one really wins. They, they just, they just all kind of get to say their piece, 
and you, and it's left up to the reader. Um, the it, it is, uh, and especially that that chapter of the Grand Inquisitor, and I believe I'm struggling to remember Yancey's kind of take on it, but it, um, that that chapter, which I, I don't know if I said, is essentially like a parable at one point in the story mm -hmm. that Ivan is telling to his brother to explain his atheism, and it all comes down to the uh, essentially the question of suffering and whether a, a just God would um, allow this to happen. And um, there, there's a part where he's like, um, you know, e even, even if there could be no other way, you know, even if this was the uh, because this is kind of the classic answer to the question of suffering. It, how can there be suffering with a benevolent God? And like, basically it had to be that way, right? There's no, uh, there's th th that's the, the way that God had to set it up to sort of um, ultimately create the greatest good is that there had to be suffering. Um, and his, Ivan's point is kind of like, even if that is the case, like it's not worth it for a, for a, a child to have to like, you know, die with its tiny fist like held up in the air obviously that's why she writes it much better than i am remembering it right now um and his the the parable that he's telling ends because the um the story is actually uh a, a high priest i think it's like maybe the spanish inquisition or something but it's in that style because you have the inquisitor but who he's questioning is uh jesus Oh my so gosh. he's like demanding and sort of like arrogantly kind of like, I think it's kind of like, we don't need you anymore. Like the church has kind of replaced you. Um, and, and again, Jesus doesn't like you would expect if someone's going to win. And if this is being, if this were a story being told by, you know, an evangelical writer, like Jesus would have some, like, like he would say like three words and the guy would start crying or something. Um, <laughs> but he just, he just he listens to the whole thing Jesus does in the story and then he just basically um he he doesn't say anything and he just kisses the inquisitor and and that and then that's the end and that's the end um, oh my gosh and that but then the um Alyosha in the story he does the same like Ivan's expecting that this is you know basically and he loves his brother he's not trying to but he's just being honest and he's expecting that he's going to be rejected by his brother because of you know he he's just laying out this what he presumes is a horrible you know thing to him and then Alyosha does the same thing to him he just kisses him um but it's just basically like this act again this act of 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 kindness um and then Ivan says, you know, that's plagiarism, but he appreciates it. <laughs> See, that's by Dostoevsky standards and Russian literature standards. That's a, a happy story almost. Yeah. You said there are no like, uh, you know, uplifting endings uh, in his books, but I, that might be the closest you get. <laughs> no, I mean, this, this one ends with the, well, the um the father again spoiler alerts if you haven't read it yet it's been like 150 years so that's on you but um <laughs> the father gets murdered and the oldest son gets blamed for it which um 
you know, there's like a lot of evidence that points to him, um, but he didn't actually do it. He did like attack the father, but didn't actually kill him. Um, so he gets blamed for it and he gets sent to, I, I think, prison in, in Siberia. Wait, we didn't get to end on the happy like brother sharing a parable moment? No, that's like halfway through the book. Oh my gosh. Okay. I need to speak to the editor. Yeah. Like, cut this book in half. Cut this part out. <laughs> we need a, a more uplifting uh, ending for the American audiences. Yeah. So you were saying that's the one that's like between that and crime and punishment, like they could both be considered kind of the, the magnum opus for Dostoevsky, right? I think so. Yeah. I think you'd probably find a, a roughly equal number of people who've read both of them that, that maybe prefer one or the other or think you know, one or the other, but they're both kind of, yeah, from his sort of like mature period of great writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and brothers, I think one of the, the last like big novels that he wrote in his, uh, his lifetime, because uh, he, he really started getting sick after that. Like um, he, he often took trips to a health resort in Germany. Uh, in 1879, he was diagnosed with early stage pulmonary emphysema that was the the same year that brothers came out i think Hmm. um and then two years later on february 7th 1881 he died from a series of pulmonary hemorrhages which i think it's like bleeding in your lungs right it sounds like i was actually surprised that that's what got him after all of the years of epilepsy it's like wait this seems like a a major plot twist yeah or maybe he was attacked by smurfs you don't know yeah, those Smurfs look at you. I was actually, I was surprised that he lived as long as he did. I, at multiple points in his life, I thought he was not long for this world. It does. If you ever do read him, it does shine a light on why like all of his characters are sickly and flawed. It's like, well, that was his life, you know. Every, everyone suffering. in his life was sick. Yeah. Like his yeah. wife, his brother, he was super ill. Yeah. So yeah, not not a uh, an easy life for Mr. Dostoevsky, um, but he clearly had a, a massive impact on world literature, Russian, obviously, like, he's part of their canon, right. um, but also here in America, I mean, obviously, he's required reading for, for students like me, so I think he, he contributed a lot to just the exploration, I mean, we've touched on this so many times, exploration of the criminal and not the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I wanted to, you know, fast forward to modern day, but there, there's a segue there just as far as um, because the reason I, you know, was maybe a little skeptical when you said you, you were sure that Dostoevsky would be opposed to the war in Ukraine, um, because I do know he's one of Putin's favorite writers. Um, there's a lot about, I read an article about this, so there's a lot in Dostoevsky's work that it that does point to um his love of russia right like his like that's one of the other main themes of his well i mean everything as much as there is suffering and there is conflict and even murder and and you know bad things like he you can't write uh you, you know you can't write in the way that he did and in the depths that he did of the humblest of russian people um or about the humblest of Russian people without loving those people and loving, you know, his, his land and wanting to, um, you know, wanting to serve it in the best way that he could. Like, I think that he really did, you know, 
leave his his claim to his estate and go into this um, this job of of literature and even you know risk his um, his freedom and even his life at that earlier part of his life when he was arrested. Um, it was all about wanting to to serve Russia and and you know help contribute to making Russia a greater and better country. Um, so this article I was reading was, you know, kind of pointing to that in Putin's out worldview and his outlook um, as being this, uh, you know, being motivated by by this idea of Russian exceptionalism, of Russian, um, you know, having a, a, a rightful claim to some of these these lands that were, um, you know, before modern day part of of Russia's tr traditional um, claimed, you know, claimed lands. But I don't know if uh, I, I, I'll, I'll say, I, I'll, I'll let you respond to that. I, I will say that I, that there is an, another part of me that thinks that he for sure would have been against it, but. I think that's interesting. And I probably should not be so sure of my own opinions on this. Um, I, I think I was mostly drawing that from the fact that, you know, he, he did speak out against Russia and in favor of Poland when they were waging their guerrilla war against uh, Russia. And also, I mean, I think that it's possible to have a deep love of country and also not, you know, support a dictator. He was obviously very outspoken against uh, the, the czars and the imperial regimes of his own time. I, I want him to be, and I think that in many ways he could uh, hold both beliefs that you know he he loves the average Russian the the little the little people the poor folk uh, and he has a deep respect and admiration for them but also doesn't want uh, a modern czar to you know invade other people's countries yeah yeah and I mean like just because a, a certain person can derive a certain thing from a very vast you know and varied canon of work um doesn't mean that that author would have necessarily agreed with that take <laughs> or been supportive of that take i mean you could probably look at some of hitler's favorite books he was a great lover of literature as well and say oh well does that mean you know you know cervantes would would have supported the um the holocaust but um I, so I, I mean, who's to say, obviously he, he was, he had, you know, his own struggles with, with, uh, health. And obviously I, I do think that you see in his work that he was a man of, um, at, at times very strong convictions and at times, uh, very much wrestling and, and waffling, you know, in the winds, but waffling I do think in the winds, I like that. I do, I do think that if he were alive today and he saw the, the courage and the resolve that the Ukrainian, you know, that the Ukrainian people are showing in the face of, you know, a, a, um, a much uh, stronger and uh, much larger armed force, uh, a much better armed force. I feel like he'd be inspired by it. I feel like he wouldn't side. I feel like. Of, of if anyone was going to support the underdog like it would be him you know I feel like he would have been on their side in that kind of fight that's perfectly stated yeah I feel the same way but we can only hope 
Frankie, thank you so much for, for joining me, for filling in uh, and helping me tackle a behemoth. I was very intimidated uh, to do this this episode. I also pitched John Grisham. That would have been a much shorter episode. <laughs> I know, right? And I chose the smallest biography on him I could <laughs> find. The one by Kevin Birmingham. There's another highly respected biography that's like a thousand plus pages. Yeah. It's massive. I was like, I am not going to be reading that. But even this one was very in-depth and uh, very interesting and entertaining. Um, so highly recommend it, The Saint and the Sinner. Like you said, it, it only looks at really one of his great novels. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously talks about his life and stuff as well, but... Yeah, it dips out like right after Crime and Punishment. So yeah. I was, you know, a little bit misled by the length of it because I had to go do some more later life research. But yeah. still a very, very solid biography. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, so um, if people want to check out, you know, some of your journalistic work or other writings, uh, where can they find you? Oh, okay. Yeah. So our main thing is the uh, the Can Be Current, and we cover local news here in town. Um, check us out um, on social media at the Can Be Current or uh, canbefirst.com. And before we go, I wanted to thank one of our newest Patreon subscribers for sending us a nice message. A user who goes by Bastard King, love the name, says they're a new follower and caught up on all the episodes in about four months, which is one of the best compliments I think you could give a podcast host. We're so grateful for your feedback and your support. And if anyone else feels inclined to help us pay for our podcast hosting fees or other expenses, please subscribe to our Patreon. Until next time, bye! Bye!